I got the right ones now. Good morning. My name is Pastor Tommy. I'm really glad that you guys are joining us uh, at Mercy House. Um, if you have your Bibles, if you haven't opened them, I do encourage you to open them up to Romans chapter 10. We're actually going to start in a little bit earlier in verse 5, uh, and we're going to move through the end. Um, we're moving right along in this sermon series right now called The Power of God, uh, part 2. Uh, which is going through the second half of Romans. So last week we finished up chapter 9, we rolled into the beginning of chapter, chapter 10, um, and Lord willing we're going to finish up chapter 10 today. So let me give you a quick overview of this passage so you can know what to expect over the next 35-40 minutes or so. Um, at the beginning of chapter 10, in these first four verses, which we covered last week, what we see is Paul's heart on display. Once again, this is not the first time uh, in the book of Romans, but we see his heart on display for his fellow brothers and sisters who do not know Christ. So these are people who are not justified by God's grace. They, they have not been made righteous and right before God. And what we're going to see in the rest of chapter 10 is a continuation of his train of thought. And verses 5 through 13 essentially answer what would it take for his brothers and sisters, or really anyone, and any person, to come to have saving faith in Christ. And Paul's thesis statement, which, which we're going to continue hammering throughout this entire book, is that justification, so being made right with God, is done by faith alone. So not, amount, uh, not any amount of work or any effort on our part. For some, this, this might be a little bit too abstract. Well, if this is you, then you're going to really appreciate this first half of this morning's message, which, which looks at the mechanics, the, the technical and practical details of how a person who has been alienated from God in their sin becomes a citizen within God's kingdom. So how someone moves from being a stranger to God to being a beloved son or daughter. Then the second half of this morning's passage, from verses 14 on to the end, it, it takes those mechanics of salvation, which are admittedly simple and very straightforward, and it further expands on how people come to faith in a broader sense. So the first half looks at how people respond to the gospel personally, where the second half is going to focus on how does the gospel actually get to that person to begin with. And here's the main point of this passage as a whole, so between five and 21, is that salvation is accessible to us and that it is our responsibility to make it accessible to others. So let me say that again. Salvation is accessible to us and it's our responsibility to make it accessible to others. Before we jump into the text, let's pray one more time that God would help us this morning. Father, you are God of, of all the nations in all times, reigning and ruling perfectly with justice and righteousness. You initiate cataclysmic supernovas and you coordinate the vast 93 billion light years of known cosmos to your will, while at the same time delicately sustaining newborn babies and arranging our subatomic particles, which all of life consists. There is no one greater than you, God. No one can even hold a candle to your greatness. We simply just take this moment to acknowledge this truth that we are in awe of you this morning. Father, I pray that your word would be communicated clearly to your people this morning, God, that there would not be an ignorant ear in this room, Father, and that not only would your words be coherently and boldly preached, but that your words would be received and responded to appropriately, God. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to be able to receive this word this morning. Father, let us 
not just be hearers of your word, deceiving ourselves, but by your spirit, we pray that you would transform us into doers of your word, God. Give us your heart for the lost. Give us your compassion for those who don't know you and your passion to bring them the gospel of your salvation. I pray this all in the sovereign name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Starting in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Paul continues to go back to God's Word with lots of references to the Old Testament this morning. In chapter 10, we see eight different references to Scripture, and this alone is going to tell us a couple of things. And First, that this is exactly what Paul means by having a zeal that is informed and based on knowledge from the verses that we saw earlier in Romans 10. Paul isn't basing his claims or his theology on how he feels about something or even what he thinks about something. Paul is rooting and grounding his claims in the Word of God. This is a demonstration of how he would want the Romans to conduct themselves. And we talked about this last week, that unlike his fellow Jews who had lots of zeal but not a solid grounding for that seal, we use the illustration of having a really fast car but aimed in the wrong direction, He would want the Romans to be well acquainted with God's word so as to not be ignorant. He's practicing what he's preaching here, and what he's preaching is an expositional message based on Old Testament texts to reveal the heart and the will of God. As a secondary emphasis here, read your Bibles, Mercy House. You, you got to read your Bibles and saturate yourselves with God's Word, and, and not just the Gospels and the Epistles and some of the Proverbs. Like, read all of the Word of God. I think many of us, myself included, we have a favorite book of the Bible. Like, we're going to gravitate toward a book in certain seasons of our life. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but we need a full and balanced diet of God's Word. So in other words, eat your vegetables, which means read the Old Testament, Read the major and the minor prophets, even when they don't come as intuitively to you, even when they're a little bit like hard to digest, we need, a, we need a full, unabridged diet of the Word of God in order to be mature followers of God. So what is the text that Paul is in for his sermon in, in this text that we're reading? Well, there's two that come up first here. The first one is in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, and then Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. Uh, Both of these are written by Moses within the Pentateuch. These are the first five books of the Bible. And what's interesting is that Paul is, in a sense, he's pitting Moses against Moses. You're going to see what this looks like in a second, but he's presenting two ideas that kind of seem at odds with one another. That first verse that he quotes in Romans 10.5 from Leviticus reads, the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, the traditional interpretation of this, which is what I'm going to adhere to, is that those who follow God's commandments, his law, is going to live by them. And this sense of living is going beyond the temporary earthly living. He's talking about an eternal living. What Moses was saying was, 
obedience leads to salvation. Well, wait a minute. We, we got to pump the brakes for a second. I thought this whole salvation thing is by faith and not by works and obedience. And yes, it absolutely is. This isn't Paul changing course on us. What he's reminding us is that there has always been a path to God through obedience. This is what he means by the preface in verse 5 there where he says the righteousness based on the law, so it is a valid root to God. Now, he's going to contrast this in a minute to the righteousness that is based on faith, not by the law, But these are two ways that we can get to God, either through obedience or through faith. I think I mixed up which one I did, but obedience we'll we'll do on this side and faith on this side. The, The problem with the obedience path is that no one can do it. No one can keep the law perfectly. Paul talks about this earlier in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the glory of God is revealed in the law that's been given to us by God. It is like a comprehensive test that shows whether or not a person is righteous like God. And what happens when sinful people like you and I, even though we're made in the image of God, we're designed to display the glory and the righteousness of God, but when we are broken by sin, as broken sinful image bearers, when we take the test, we will fall short. The law may be a path to righteousness and salvation, but it's not one that any of us here in this room can traverse. Still, there are those, like Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters, and people here today who will try to take this path, who will try to rely on their own efforts, their own test scores, so to speak, in order to be saved. This is not something that is irrelevant to the people in this room. A poll by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University in 2020 found that 48% of U.S. adults affirm the statement that a person who is generally good or does enough good things for others will earn a place in heaven. This poll was taken by those who identified as Christians. A work-based view of salvation is not like a fringe idea that Pharisees from, from the Bible times and a few religious fanatics today have. Half of the American Christians, one in two professing Christians in our country, believe that the way that you're going to be saved, the way that you're going to earn righteousness is by being generally good or doing enough good things for others. One in two Christians will stand before God on the Lord's day of judgment, and they will say to him, look at all I've done. Look at my works and count those against my sin and let let, let, let me and who I am and what I've done into your perfect presence and your eternal kingdom. Mercy House, that is not the gospel. Len Munsell, he's the president of Arizona Christian University who performed the study, he agreed. He said that the lack of understanding of basic Christian theology is stunning with potentially devastating consequences for individual souls and really for all aspects of American life and culture. In this same study, 63% of adults believe that having faith matters more than which faith you have. 
Mercy House, this ought to break your heart. This statement could not be further from the truth. Having the wrong faith in the end is the same result of having no faith. Theology matters. God is not ambiguous and vague. He is clear and he is specific. And this is why Paul is going to great lengths to correct the Romans and help them understand God better. And why we as your pastors diligently work to guard these doctrines of the church. The righteousness that is based on the law implies perfect obedience, not an ounce of falling short. It's a road that we cannot traverse, and it will lead to our eternal death. But thank God there is another way, the the path of righteousness that's based on faith. And here's where Paul pits Moses against Moses by using a reference from Deuteronomy 30 to contrast the Leviticus reference. In verses 6 through 7 of chapter 10, he says this, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. We need a little bit of context for this reference. Uh, This one is, again, from Deuteronomy 30, where God is renewing his covenant with his people at Moab. And what he's communicating to them, which is what Paul is quoting, are these verses. And I want to read them in their spot in Deuteronomy, which has a little bit more context for us. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 13. For this commandment that I command to you today, so this is at the end of him reiterating his law, is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over to the sea to bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? So as God is rehashing the covenant with Israel, he's making this point, and what he's calling them to do is is accessible to them. He's telling them that you shouldn't ask if you need to climb up into heaven in order to receive it. You shouldn't need to ask, can you travel across the ocean to receive it? God is saying it's not too far off. It's not too hard for you. Now, this is a blatant clue for us on this side of Jesus' coming because the law is hard. In fact, it is impossible. That's what we've just been talking about. But Paul is revealing that God's vision for his people was not perfect obedience of the law, but having faith that God would save them even though they continually failed to keep the law. That's what it was always about for Israel. But they tripped over grace just as they tripped over grace in Paul's day. Here's what we can take away from this. The righteousness that comes from faith is something that is, is not accomplished or achieved. I'm going to sound like a broken record by the end of this sermon series, but I'm happy to defend with repetition what Paul does over and over again as well, which is that justification and our salvation is by faith alone. That's the point that God is trying to make in Deuteronomy at Moab, and it's the point that Paul is making here. You don't need to climb into heaven for salvation. You don't need to cross an ocean of misery and trials and suffering and hardship for it. 
Israel missed this point, and apparently so do one in every two Christians in America. Even those of us who are Christians, who got this point at one point, may struggle to remember this point. How often do we as Christians think we need to spiritually perform in some way in order for God to look at us in a certain way? Or that we need to be good or to do good things for others in order to be a quote-unquote better Christian? How often do we feel the guilt of not being further along in our Bible reading plan or that we're reading the Bible at all or, or that, that we don't serve enough in our church or in our community, that we just need to do something a little bit more if we're going to be a Christian? Deuteronomy 30 verse 14 says this, but the, but the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. We don't need to climb up into heaven. We don't need to cross an ocean to be made right with God because Jesus himself has come down from heaven and Jesus himself has crossed the great chasm which separated him from us to bring us the gospel of himself. What Paul is saying is that it's right here. It's right here when salvation is by faith. It means that it is not about physical exertion or intellectual power. You, you, you don't need a PhD in biblical studies or a master's in divinity to understand this. It is so simple and it is so accessible that it's on the tip of your tongue. That's the language. That's what God is saying here. The word is near you, in your mouth, and it's in your heart. Salvation is accessible to you right now. How accessible is it? Well, let's find out. Look at verse 9. Because... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Talk about a shortcut to righteousness. As promised, we're, we're seeing the inner workings of how someone becomes a believer. Paul pulls back the curtain a little bit, and honestly, it's a little underwhelming in a sense. There's no grand initiation into the faith. There's no special words you need to speak or an extravagant ceremony or clothes you get to wear. I remember when I was a child and I joined Awana. Awana is like a Christian Boy Scouts. I had to memorize Bible verses. I had to wear a special Awana shirt. I had to memorize a song and sing it. I don't know if they still do that today, but it is literally be like easier to become a Christian than it is to join a kids club, at least practically. I have nothing against Awana. They're great. There are two major components to saving faith, and you see it right here in verse 9. Look, look at verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. These are the two necessary components of Christian faith. 
that leads to righteousness and salvation. It's believing in who Jesus is and what Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, who Jesus is and what Jesus did. When we see those verses that, that, that say that this is who Jesus is, so, so Jesus is Lord, that's referring to the divinity of God, not merely him as a great teacher or philosopher or, or, or a leader or just all around good guy from ancient times. To have saving faith means having a correct understanding that Jesus is God-made flesh, that he is the second person in our triune God, along with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. That's part of the song that we sang earlier. That's who Jesus is. And then what Jesus did in the second part of verse 9, that God raised him from the dead. This implies that you know the story of Christ that he lived a perfect life in obedience to God and the law. He, he aced the exam of righteousness, and, and he died in our place as a payment for our sins in order to purchase for us righteousness, and that God has raised him from the dead because death had no power over him and could not keep him. That's it. Justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. And, and the way that you have this faith that leads to justification is by believing who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So no extra uh, works or sacraments sprinkled on top, no songs to memorize, no, no uniforms to wear, no secret handshake to learn. This is how people are saved, Mercy House. And if anyone tells you something different, or tries to add to the simple belief of Christ and Him crucified, they are wrong. And if they are a Christian, we need to correct them. And if they claim to be a Christian, then we need to admonish them. Not just to be right for the, for the sake of being right, but for the sake of their souls. And may 48% of Christians who believe a false gospel be saved. How are they saved? By believing in King Jesus and his work. Salvation is accessible. So now you understand Moses and Paul when they say that the word is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. Okay, well, what does belief actually look like? It's possible for some who look at these verses to get a little tripped up over uh, what's done with the mouth as opposed to what's done with the heart, as if there's a significance to that ordering, or, or maybe there's a special combination of events that need to be played out in order for salvation uh, to, to actually take in the person. That is not the case. What Paul is utilizing here is a Hebrew literary device called parallelism which pairs things together as one concept. We understand this uh, because true belief is seen in the things that we not only say, but also the things that we hold to be true in our hearts. So faith that leads to justification is one of our whole being, not just an intellectual understanding of our heads, but a conviction within our hearts, which then pours out in our speech and our actions. God is not looking for lip service 
um, only. He, he's not only concerned with just the outward appearance or the display of this faith for salvation. And while we might think that we can maybe trick others, maybe even trick ourselves into thinking that we are believers, that we are Christians, God knows our hearts. He does. And what he desires is that we love him with not just our soul, with, all, with, with not just all of our mind, but also with all of our heart as well. That's Matthew 22, verse 37. So let's move on to these next verses, which will shed a little bit more light into this. Look at verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So before moving on after explaining how salvation works, Paul gives us three powerful pieces of encouragement. And the first is a reassurance that those who have put their faith in Christ won't ever regret it. The reference is from Psalm 25, which says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This is for the unbeliever contemplating a faith in God, a potential faith in God. And it's for the seasoned follower of God who is just struggling in belief. To those who are not yet Christians and, and saying in your minds that, hey, this is a little crazy. Like, what am I thinking? What will my friends say? What, what is my family going to say? God says to you, if you believe in Christ, you will not be put to shame. You will ultimately have zero, zero regrets and that this will be easily the best decision of your very long eternal life. To those of us who are struggling Wondering, why am I here at church still? Why am I struggling as a Christian when I could be cruising as a non-Christian? Why do I have to bear these burdens and all these worries? Why, why can't I just go and, and have fun and, and live the life that I want to live? Why do I have to learn these things and be accountable for my theology and my doctrine? Why do I have to do church when church is so messy and so hard and so painful, why couldn't I just have taken the blue pill and just lived in ignorance for the rest of my life? I want to acknowledge that life under the sun, especially when your allegiance is to Christ, is not easy. We as Christians are called to die to ourselves daily, <laughs> to bear our cross, to suffer, and not just to suffer, but to suffer well. And on some days, in those dark, quiet moments, when we are by ourselves, we will wonder, what am I doing? Is this even real? Am I crazy? Hear the promise of God. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Christ will not let you down, Christian. He is not laughing at your misery. He will not abandon you. He will not betray you. He is not a liar. There is not a spot of injustice in him. And there will come a day when you will stand before him in all his glory, and you will be fully glorified yourself, and you will look at him in the eyes, 
and all of the thoughts and the doubts and the frustrations and the pains and the sufferings will evaporate like, like, like snow on the surface of the sun and you will experience the full truth of this verse that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Quite the opposite. We will be brought to honor and glory and rejoice like our souls have never known before. Who is this for? It's for everyone. Look at verse 12. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. You don't need to be a certain person to be able to receive this message. How can we, how can we be so sure of this? Look at verse 13 right after that. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the way that God has designed and ordained us as sinful people to receive his righteousness and to be made right with God. Not with a righteousness that is based on the law, an impossible route to take, but a righteousness that is based on faith. And that faith is initiated not by works, not by human effort, not by any means which we would be able to receive credit for, but by calling on Christ with our mouths as an extension of the belief and conviction that is within our hearts. And if you do that, if you have done that, you will be saved or you have been saved. Period. There is no asterisk that you need to do this. There's no footnote that you need to do that. There's no parenthetical that says, well, if you are generally good and do good enough things for other people, no, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation is accessible. And once it is accessed, it is eternal. Now, it's at this point that Paul pivots after explaining how accessible salvation is to, to us who hear this gospel right here and right now in this room to how inaccessible salvation is to those who don't have this gospel. So we've established that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then look at these next verses. Verse 14. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. In other words, salvation is only accessible to those who know who to call on. And knowing who to call on is explained within the gospel. But not everyone has the gospel. Paul writes these verses in this way for a reason. Uh, before verses, in verses 9 through 13, we saw the process of salvation. And here we're seeing the process of evangelism. Now, that word admittedly can sound strange. It even has some cultural baggage to it. But the Greek word for an evangelist is someone who brings good news. And we know that the word gospel in the Greek also means good news. And so evangelism is simply bringing the gospel. That's what evangelism is, bringing the good news of Jesus. Paul writes these verses in the way that he does, more for the sake of powerful rhetoric 
But the process of evangelism is easier understood when it's actually traced backwards while answering the questions that he is posing. So let me read that one more time. Verse 14, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So when you order that backwards, we have the answers to all of these questions. Christians are the ones who are sent to preach the good news or the gospel so that people can hear the gospel, so that some of those who hear the gospel can learn about Jesus, so that those who learn about Jesus can then put their trust and believe in Jesus so that those who uh, believe in Jesus are then going to call on Jesus, and that those who call on Jesus will be saved, because everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. You see that? The solution is in Paul's question. He writes that purposely. It's beautiful. It's why Paul ends that section with a reference to Isaiah 52.7. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What you need to know about feet in ancient times is that they were nasty, okay? They didn't have blunt stones or merrills. They didn't have smart wool socks to wear. Military messengers, which is who this passage is referring to, would have traveled dozens of miles in sandals on dirt paths filled with mud and refuse. Their feet were stinky, sweaty, and nasty. But the messenger, when he arrived home, proclaiming the good news to an anxious and worried city that the battle has been won, that the people have nothing to fear, they have nothing to worry about, that that there's going to be peace, and that they've been saved by a sure death and destruction. Those nasty, dirty, sweaty, stinky feet were glorious. And they were beautiful because on them were carried the good news of salvation. As Christians, we have this opportunity to bring life-changing good news to those who are anxious and afraid, sick and suffering, destined for destruction, to tell them that King Jesus has won the final battle and that rescue and restoration is more sure than the rising sun of tomorrow. But some of us don't do this. Why, brothers and sisters? Is it because we don't know who to go to? Evangelism isn't just reserved for the unreached peoples at the ends of the earth. It's for our families. It's for our neighbors. It's for our coworkers. Verse 12 through 13 says, all people, everyone, you might have this vision for mission or maybe even excitement about, okay, I'm going to do missions. When I do, it's going to be global missions. But if we can't cross the street with the gospel, we should not be thinking about crossing any oceans with the gospel. Do we not share the gospel because we're afraid of awkwardness or rejection? Like, let's be honest, it is better for us to experience some earthly rejection from people than for those people that we would reach to experience eternal rejection from God. Do we not share the gospel because we don't know what to say? Paul seems to make it really simple here in the first half of this passage. But we also see that Paul practices what he preaches. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5, through 5, he says this, 
And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So remember, that's all that you need in order to be saved. That is the basis of the gospel, who Jesus is and what he has done. But Paul didn't just do this because he he didn't want to get into the details of the gospel, like he was lazy or something like that. Look at these next verses. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. This is Paul, okay? And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. My words here, your words, they have no saving power. None. People are not saved by persuasiveness or passion or good arguments. We don't need to read a a book on apologetics to have every answer prepared for every question that we're going to encounter as though we ourselves command the power of salvation. Our words can be carried in weakness. We can tremble with fear with Paul because while we carry the good news of salvation, it's God who does the saving. Some Christians don't evangelize because we either don't understand or we forget who does the heavy lifting of salvation. Paul says later on, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So let me ask you again, personally, individually, you don't have to answer me. I do urge you to consider this before the Lord. If you are a follower of Christ and you do not, are not carrying the good news of salvation to those around you, why don't you? Why don't you? I'm not here to condemn. This question is one I'm wrestling with myself. I'm not here to guilt you. Even Timothy had to be admonished to do the work of an evangelist. That's 2 Timothy 4.5. So no one's immune to this challenge. But sharing the gospel is not reserved for this pulpit. We are all called to evangelize. If this is a baseball team, the the preacher might be the pitcher, but everyone on the field needs to know how to throw the ball. Does that make sense? Throwing the ball is sharing the gospel, in case you're not following that illustration. We're called to be heralds of the good news, to proclaim and declare that the battle has been won, that Jesus has defeated sin and death, and that he reigns on his throne, and to receive all the blessings of that victory, all the spoils of all of the accomplishments of the cross, all that needs to be done is to believe in who he is and what he has done. That's the good news, that we have a responsibility to share. Remember the main point of this text this morning. Salvation is accessible to us, those who have heard the gospel, and it's our responsibility to make it accessible to others by sharing the gospel. Let's finish this morning with verses 16 and 17. We'll cover 18 through the end in next week's sermon. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? 
So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The they, in verse 16, is in reference to the vast majority of Jews, as Paul points out, uh, that, that they have not, I'm sorry, they have heard the gospel, but they have not obeyed it. The first thing to realize is that Paul is using a literary device, again, called parallelism, to join together belief and obedience, okay? So belief is mentioned at the top of the section, verse 14, and then the obedience is used here. These two words are joined together, again, to show that the greater depth of what true faith looks like includes both of these components. We see this introduced very early on. If you flip back to Romans 1, in Paul's introduction, he actually says, second half of uh, verse 4 into verse 5, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. So obedience is connected because the gospel does demand a response. The gospel is not just acknowledged, but it radically shapes and directs the life of the believer. If, if, if your life is marked dominantly by a lack of obedience to God, so if you spend a lot of time saying, I know what the Bible says I should do, I know how Christians ought to live, that it should look a certain way, but, but I am somehow an exception to that, that's too hard for me, I, I don't want to do that. It is critically important for you to take time to assess whether or not you have genuine faith in God and whether or not you believe the gospel. Because you might believe that God is real, that he exists, but so do the demons in James chapter 2, verse 19. Salvation requires right faith, encompassing uh, belief and obedience in the right things, which is in Christ and Him crucified. Despite all this, not everyone obeys or has belief in the gospel. This is the reality that those of us who have been faithful to preach the gospel know that not everyone who hears the gospel will go on to believe and call on the name of Jesus. Like there's plenty of people out there that we've encountered, people sitting in this room right here, right now, who have heard the gospel being preached for these past 30 minutes or so, uh, who still don't believe. That's just the reality. Paul himself was in this camp. Paul heard the gospel. He heard it enough in order to assess uh, and conclude that, that it was a heresy, and he proceeded to persecute the early church. Now, think about that for a moment. If Paul, who was widely accepted to be one of the smartest men in the Middle East during this time, if he heard the gospel, and he is so smart, how on earth could he not put two and two together that Jesus was the Christ, was the Messiah, that all of the scriptures that he had memorized actually pointed to? It's because it's God who saves, not man. The gospel is not something that is discoverable or, or comes about through personal epiphany. It is something that is supernaturally revealed to you by God through the Holy Spirit inside of you. This is why we pray almost every Sunday before we preach the gospel that God would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive the good news. Because if the Spirit of God is not involved we are as blind and deaf and hard-hearted as Paul was, even as the smartest man in all of Palestine. 
and as blind and deaf and hard-hearted as his Jewish brothers and sisters, who all heard the gospel but did not. They could not respond in obedience. And so we pray. Let's pray right now. Father, this is our prayer, that you would knock some of us off of our high horses like you literally did to Paul, that you would soften the rocks that we have for hearts, God, that you would unblock our ears and give sight to our eyes, that we could hear your voice and see the truth of your gospel, and may we call on the one who saves and respond in obedient-filled faith in the work that you have done. Amen. Verse 17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. There is no other way to faith in Christ other than the word of Jesus Christ. This is why we preach the word of Christ every single Sunday. It's why we huddle all together here and we lean in to hear the word being preached. That's why we exhort you as your leaders, as those who love you, exhort you and encourage you to read the, the, your Bibles and to study your Bibles throughout the week because man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Matthew 4.4. 4. And this is what we remember each week as we take communion that God's word became flesh. Remember that we don't have to climb into heaven. We don't have to cross an ocean. Look, we might fail to evangelize, but God did not fail to evangelize us. The word which was the gospel writer's nickname, uh, gospel writer John's nickname for Jesus, the word came down from heaven, crossed into creation to deliver himself as the good news for us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. He who has ears, let him hear. Mercy House, may you hear the word of Christ this morning. May you see what he has done on the cross for you. And may that lead you to first-time faith or greater faith in him. Let's pray. God, you... You are. There is nothing before you. There will be nothing after you. You are the king of all creation. You hold everything together. You are so far higher than we are. Yet you have knelt down into creation to extend grace and mercy and love to us because we are your people. Father, I pray for those who don't know you, who have not put their faith and their belief and their obedience in you, and I pray this morning 
that they would respond. Lord, that they would know, even from the onset, that this decision is one that will never put them to shame. God, I pray for those of us who are struggling. We're sitting here this morning, and we're having a hard time just holding it together. Father, let us hear the words that that those who have called on you, those who have called on the name of the Lord, will be saved. God, that includes restoration, reconciliation, vindication, God. Lord, I pray this morning as we reflect as Christians on those in our lives who don't know you, God, would you break our hearts? Lord, would you give us a desire, Lord, that is maybe foreign to us, God, because we don't care and love as we ought to, Lord, but by your Spirit, give us the compassion for our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our families to endure the mocking, the rejection, the pain of heralding the good news so that these people would be able to hear and respond to your gospel, God. God, thank you so much for sending somebody to preach and proclaim the gospel to us, God. Whoever that person was, Lord, no one here discovered you in a vacuum. And so I pray, Lord, for that person. Thank you for their obedience, God. Thank you for their willingness to to communicate something and, and risk being awkward so that we would have this eternal treasure, God. Help us to do the same for others. Father, we love you so much. Thank you for loving us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.